Do you believe he's coming back? Yes. Amen. We were talking about this yesterday morning in the kitchen, uh, and I said, somebody said, what if he comes back uh, before the weekend? Uh, somebody said, and I said, well, if he does that, I will have wasted all my sermon prep, you know, for Sunday. <laughs> That's a good trade-off, though, wouldn't it be? Jesus instead of Mauer? Come on. I mean, <laughs> give me a break. Give me, what's that? I said amen. Yeah, amen. Every time, that's the right decision. Every time. Um, I got to tell, where's, where's Farrell? Did he slip out? Over here. Over here? There he is, front row. I got to tell a quick story about Tim because this was, um, this was his, this is all seriousness, his last greeting time uh, because he's done as an elder, so... He didn't mention that, but I want to mention that. But it reminded me of, you're talking about, you know, your, your uh, early, being your first church and all. Uh, I'll never forget, as long as I live, Tim's first time at Grace Church. It was back in the West Bay Elementary. We're just a little small group. We're having a concert of prayer. Remember those? Uh, anyone's ever participated in one of those where the leader kind of leads the next prayer, and then you're in small groups. So we had four or five or six little, little groups around the church praying. And I'm thinking... You know, I think I met you at Walmart for like 30, 20 seconds, and this is his first time at church, and we're doing this like really different thing where it's real intense, and we're close, tight, and praying about these things that I had no idea if he understood anything, and I'm just thinking the whole time, I'm just bothered by this. I'm thinking, Tim is going to think this is so weird. This is, gonna, this is just horrible. This is just the wrong Sunday for Tim to show up. We get done, he says, that was really nice, he says. And I thought, oh, you of little faith, Maurer. Seriously, seriously, oh, me of little faith. Um, so that, that, was, that was Tim's first, first day. So um, anyway, that is uh, story time over. Um, but uh, talking about home makeover shows, uh, been popular for a long time. Remember the uh, extreme home makeover, right? That was super popular for a while with a, the with a tagline of move, Help me out. That bus. That, you saw it, did you? Move that bus. But it died out, didn't, didn't it? All these home, make, home makeover, uh, home improvement shows will rise up for a while, and then they lose their popularity. I just learned uh, last week that this old house is in its 41st season. What is with that? What an enduring show. And uh, th those are fun to watch. I, you know, I don't see it very often, but anything where there's that, that kind of complete makeover, remodeling, is, is fascinating to me because most of those skills I don't possess, so, so I'm extra intrigued by them. But recently I started watching a couple of these YouTube videos where they, they restore things, like, like they'll take like, like an old rusty axe and, and make it brand new again. That whole process, is, there's something kind of relaxing about it. Something kind of therapeutic about watching that process. And one of, the ones that, one of my favorites was this, uh, I'm going to show you a, a quick video in a second, this old Tonka truck toy that was just absolutely rusty and uh, turns into uh, something amazing. Uh, we're we're going to watch 10 minutes sped up uh, very quickly here. Boom, just that easy, right? Uh, go from that to that. 
I, I find those absolutely fascinating. The name of this YouTube channel is, and some of you will be like, I'm going to watch this later, Rescue and Restore. And this is exactly what it does. He rescues this old junky stuff and restores it to pristine condition. And I thought, you know what? That's what the Lord does for us. He rescues us and restores us, but he also then transforms us and is a process of continuing to transform us. And I'm convinced that's what Titus chapter 3 is all about. So if you want to turn your Bibles, follow along. I'm going to start reading from verse 1 of Titus chapter 3. This will be uh, finishing our study through the book of Titus this morning. Remember Paul's writing to his dear son in the faith, Titus, and he says to him, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This passage, like a lot of, especially the epistles, any section out of those, uh, for sure, reads like a lot of a list of to, do, do's and don'ts. You know, make sure you do these things. Uh, certainly avoid those things. About half of this chapter or more are all those kind of things. Do this, don't do that. And there are so many of these kinds of lists and principles of right behavior in the Bible that, that if you read it wrongly, if you were taught it incorrectly, you might think, you know, being a Christian is all about right behavior. Being a Christian is all about making my life a little better than it was before. For example, here is a bullet point of all those do's and don'ts. I won't read them again, but uh, again, it's really about half the chapter or more. And this is just one short passage in a Bible that's filled with more of these. And what can happen is we, we see standards like this, and we might look at that and read and say, you know, I'm doing pretty good. You know, pat myself on the back. You know, this is a good week. This is a good month. This is a good year. Or what often happens is we get hopelessly discouraged because we have failed once again. We read verses like this, passages like this, and we see law instead of grace. Law says that we, we must meet the standard. Grace says that God raises us to the standard. Law sees God as a taskmaster. Grace sees God as our Savior. Law is religion, but grace is just Jesus, isn't it? Isn't he? You and I need grace because we were, were, for those who know Christ, desperately in need 
of being rescued. That's uh, point number one this morning. And I'm going to start off with a, a quote from one of my seminary professors. I'm going to ask you to, to fill in the blank. See how he would have finished this sentence. The greatest thing about Christianity is... Give me a couple examples. The greatest thing about Christianity is... Jesus, eternal life. A couple more. Hope. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Those are great answers. I mean, there isn't maybe just one right answer, because uh, you know, but, but he's, he's aiming at one, isn't he? The greatest thing about Christianity is, he said, the doctrine of sin. Now, hold, hold on to that thought for a second. Um, I think he was echoing Jonathan Edwards' book called The Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended. First of all, he calls it the great Christian doctrine of original sin defended. Now, why would they refer to sin as the greatest Christian doctrine? Are they saying that sin is greater than Jesus? Are they saying that the consequences of sin is greater than his mercy and salvation? Well, of course not. Sin is not better than Jesus, not better than his great mercy. But without a biblical understanding of sin, we can never have a true biblical understanding of Jesus and his mercy. Those two are inseparable from one another. And notice the title of Edwards' book, The Great Christian Doctrine, Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended. See, he was defending that against serious attacks, and those attacks were not, they're not coming from outside the church. Those serious attacks were coming from within the church. There was a very popular book that was circulating in his day that he, was, he wrote his book in response to it. And the doctrine he was defending against is that the belief that Adam's sin only led to physical death. That, that because Adam died, you and I die, but it has nothing to do with original sin or imputation of his sin to us. Genesis 2 says this, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, did Adam physically die? Of course he did. But ultimately, what, what the Lord is driving at there is a final spiritual death. And if you ever doubted that at all, read Romans 5. There was a pastor that lived in Vroke for a while, and he, he struggled with this idea of, of Adam's sin being passed on to us. Uh, and then he really did a deep dive in Romans 5, and he's like, you know what? There it is. Uh, Adam's sin has become our sin. Now, we still sin, don't we? We, we, we? we have a sin nature, but then we solidify that with our own sinning. Uh, that's why even our own doctrinal statement, you know, we, we sang a doctrinal statement, didn't we, that last song, I believe. But our own doctrinal statement says uh, that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Two of those things, both of those are true. So 300 years ago, Edwards had to defend the doctrine of original sin against those who would weaken it. Because as soon as you mess with original sin, you end up with a different gospel. You end up actually with a different Jesus. Cornelius Plantica wrote this, to ignore, euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. Another writer said this, without a robust doctrine of sin, we've fostered a morality that equates niceness and goodness. And that's what I mean, right? You know, we can believe that Christianity is all about just right behavior and improving our level of morality. So to make sure that we're, we're anchored firmly to the text here, uh, look back at verse 3. It explains why we need to be rescued. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Notice the key phrase there, we were once these things. So all those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, trusted in Christ alone uh, for their salvation, were these things. You are no longer these things. They were true of you at one time. Christ has radically changed those things. It's a description of our pre-converted state, pre-cross life. On a few occasions, I've uh, mentioned this uh, pamphlet, 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation. I believe there's more than 33, but there are at least 33 things that happen at the moment of salvation. And I've got some copies on the back table if you'd like to pick one up. Highly recommend it because it's each of the 33 things is one page, and it's got a couple of extra scriptures to go with it. So in five or ten minutes a day, for a little over a month, you can meditate on those 33 things. But if you were to take each of those aspects of our salvation and reverse them, turn, turn them back to the opposite, you will have the true state of our souls apart from Christ, the very opposite of all of those things. And here's the bottom line. If our sin was not all that bad, then salvation is not all that good. If our sin is not all that bad, salvation is not all that good. If I offered you, for example, I offered you three months of chemotherapy right now, you would say, no thanks. You know, what's wrong with Maurer? That, that's an insane idea. But if you were, had a serious cancer diagnosis, you might strongly consider that because you realize that the cure meets the diagnosis. And clearly, the cure of Christ's infinite mercy meets the diagnosis of our infinite hopeless sin. If all I need is self-improvement, then what Jesus becomes is the very best model of human behavior. That, that's all he is. But if I am God's enemy, eternally lost without Christ, then I need to be rescued. And that's exactly what he did for us, but he actually did a lot more than that. He also restored us. And this restoration uh, gives us a great glimpse, fundamentally, into God's character, into his saving work. Uh, verses 4 to 7 show the extent of our restoration. The first thing we get is the why. Why did he save us? Well, very clearly, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Denying anything we've done, giving credit fully to God's mercy. And I'm not sure if this can be said enough to believers and unbelievers alike, that it's not because of our works, but only because of his mercy. And we need to hear that because we are wired to fix things ourselves, right? We are wired to solve all of our own problems. We are not wired to fully and radically depend on someone else to fix our lives. That's just not the way we're wired. We want to do it ourselves. Why are we saved? According to his own mercy. And what he's describing here is not just a thing, mercy, but a person, God. God's mercy. And remember, when it comes to attributes of God's character, that God does not just contain mercy, God is mercy. Do you see? He does not just, uh, mercy is his, his very essence. Mercy is his very being. And what that means, among other things, is that, that God cannot become more merciful and God will never become less merciful depending on the circumstances, which is completely different than the way you and I operate, right? That when it comes to even something like mercy, for me, it's completely dependent or almost completely dependent upon my circumstances, right? Am I hungry? 
That's going to make a difference. Am I tired? That's going to make a difference. Maybe 10 minutes ago, I depleted my mercy tank on somebody else, and I'm all out of that precious commodity, right? I do not have an infinite mercy tank. Not so with God. Because his mercy, he, he is mercy personified. He is mercy exemplified, which is exactly what you and I needed to have been rescued in the first place. Because in the absence of mercy, what would we have received? Pure justice and, undeser- and deservedly so. But the character of God is, that, that's the character of God being revealed in his work, but it's revealed even further in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. First of all, I love that phrase, right? When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. What is it talking about? That's Jesus. That's Jesus incarnate. Jesus coming to rescue us. And the word loving kindness there is this word uh, philanthropia. And that, that rings a bell, right? It looks like an English word. Obviously, the English word philanthropy, uh, which simply means Philos, anthropos, a love of mankind. Uh, as far as I can tell, Andrew Carnegie was probably the original and even arguably to this day the best philanthropist in all the world. Uh, the, the amount of money that he gave away in his lifetime was, was staggering. Last time I checked, Bill Gates is giving away approximately a billion dollars a year. That's like $3 million every single day like to apply for some of that money, right? Uh, see if you can get some. That's a lot of money. But in his lifetime, Andrew Carnegie gave away about $100 billion. But even that staggering amount is nothing compared to God's philanthropy. Because when your essential nature is mercy, then the outflow of that mercy has to be a love for humanity, even when that humanity is your enemy. This is the, the why of salvation. It's the God's motivation for salvation. And we also see next is the how. How did you do it? What, what does this look like? We're told explicitly, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We get this Bible word, regeneration. It's a word that we don't talk a lot about, doesn't get a lot of, a lot of press Uh, partly because it's not a very common word in Scripture, but it's a really, really important word. And one of the the clearest places that we see it, even though we don't see the word regeneration, would be in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to uh, uh, Jesus at nighttime, remember, under cover of darkness, asks him some questions, and Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Being born again is that regeneration. Uh, that's exactly what that is. Um, the other place regeneration is used is in Matthew 19. In the ESV, it writes this, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't want to get into the whole the judgment part there in the, in the 12 thrones, but more looking at that phrase, the new world, because the NASB, the King James, says in the regeneration, and the NIV has at the renewal of all things. So what this is referring to is the eventual new heavens and new earth. And you know we're getting a new one, right? 
You know, I think there's another doctrine that we forget about, that this, new, this heavens and this earth is going to be destroyed, and we're going to get a brand new heavens and new earth. It's going to be recreated. It's going to be regenerated. So what they're saying here is, what will eventually happen to all of creation has already happened to every single believer. We have been regenerated. We have been washed. We have been renewed and restored. But unlike the old Tonka truck, it didn't take days or hours or even seconds because regeneration is an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit that cannot be reversed. Regeneration is an instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit that cannot be reversed. And if you have trusted in Christ alone as your Savior, you have already experienced the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. You've been washed and renewed and regenerated, and just like the entire heavens and earth will be one day, that is what you are already like. And why is it important that this cannot be reversed? Instantaneous work of the Holy Spirit that cannot be reversed. Why is that so important? Remember I mentioned Jonathan Edwards' book, the uh, defending the original doctrine of sin. He had to defend it because it was under attack, under a serious attack. Now, another guy came along a couple generations. He wasn't a contemporary of Edwards, but Charles Finney came along a couple generations and essentially was doing the same thing. Fundamentally, he was attacking the doctrine of original sin. He wrote this. Now, this is a, it's a kind of a heavy uh, uh, statement here, but I'll break it down for you. He says, the doctrine of a literal imputation of Adam's sin to all his posterity, let, let me jump to the end, actually. He says, last sentence, I regard these dogmas as, as fabulous and better befitting a romance than a system of theology. So he's, gonna, he's rejecting all these things as fanciful, fa, fa, uh, as, as just fancy and fable. Uh, so what does he reject? Let me back up now. The doctrine of a literal imputation of Adam's sin to all his posterity. So that's Romans 5, that we, we uh, have a sinful nature through Adam. He rejects that. Uh, the literal imputation of all the sins of the elect to Christ, he rejects that so that, that Christ would take our sins and then, uh, uh, and then the exact amount due to the transgressors of the literal imputation of Christ's righteousness to the elect Right? That's a great exchange where, where Christ took our sins upon him and we got his righteousness instead. So he's rejecting the imputation of Adam's sin to us, or of our sins to Christ, and of Christ's righteousness to us. He's rejecting all of that. And he, uh, if he had any doubt that he was rejecting this, he also said this. It is true that the atonement of itself does not secure the salvation of anyone. Do you see what he's saying is here? If you don't believe in original sin, or if you change original sin, then you get a different gospel. You get a different Jesus. And this has even worse implications, according to him, because he also wrote this. Whenever he sins, that, that is the, the Christian, whenever he or she sins, he must, for the time being, he for the time being, ceases to be holy. The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned when he disobeys. In these respects, then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are upon precisely the same ground. Can I suggest that that is one of the most discouraging things you will ever read in your life? Depressing things? Remember that long list of commands that we're supposed to do and the, and the list of sins that we're supposed to avoid? 
If we fail to do one of those things or do one of the things we're not supposed to do, uh, what he's saying is we are immediately like this unconverted sinner. In other words, every time we sin, we again need to be rescued and restored. See how horrible that would be. Can you, can you feel the weighty burden that would be upon us? That our security in Christ would be like a revolving door, right? You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. You never know if you're in or out at that point. But that's not the way it works. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But because God is mercy, because God is kindness, we have been rescued and restored. We have been washed and regenerated. We have become something entirely different than we once were. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Obedience cannot earn our salvation, and sin cannot cause us to lose our salvation. However, we're not just supposed to just stay the way we are, right? Otherwise, those texts like this would not be in the Bible. Uh, These are standards to which Christ can lift us, and that is a process called transformation, or we might say the process of applied grace. Now let's uh, glance at that list again, and uh, if you kind of meditated on a little bit, you might see that almost every one of them has to do with getting along with one another, especially with other believers. The list in the passage itself culminates in this this very severe warning. Let me read that one. As for a person who stirs up divisions after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's a serious warning. And especially if you compare it to Matthew 18, which is about church discipline, that process is very clear, right? Someone is in sin, uh, you first go to them personally and try, try to show them their sin. If that doesn't work, you take a few friends with you and you try to show them their sin. If that doesn't work, you tell to the church. There's this process that you go through that is for the purpose of, of redemption or restoration of that sinning person. But this one, it's like strike one, strike two. There is no strike three. Strike two and you're out. That's showing the seriousness of divisiveness. And one could make a case here that all the other things on this list, if not handled carefully, become precursors to division. You see what I mean? So if, in other words, the body of Christ is not kind and gentle with one another, what's it, what does it do? It chips away at our unity in Christ. If you quarrel over worthless things, that is chipping away at our unity in the body. So even though these things apply to Individual believers, these are all things that we have to do as individuals. This is more about a communal command, right? This is more about a a, a communal, a community command and principle. It's not so much about you and me, but about us and we, how we get along, how we treat one another. So being rescued and restored, or or we just call the gospel, because that's what it is, is both the power, because now, now we're changed, right? We're something entirely different. And then the motivation for getting along with one another. Because if infinite mercy has been extended to us, then mercy ought to flow out of us. And it's all about perception, isn't it? God is infinite in mercy, and he's given us infinite mercy. But if we perceive his mercy as small, and the only reason we would perceive his mercy as small is because we've, we've perceived our sin as small, Right? Because the 
cure has to be uh, in line with the diagnosis. And if the sin is small, the cure is small. If the sin is great, the cure must also be great. And it's that mercy that flows into us, completely changes us, and then is the only power and motivation that can flow out of us, which is worship, isn't it? Which is obedience, which is even the, uh, uh, a chance at obeying these commands and avoiding those sins. And we do those things not to be saved, but because we have already been saved. We do them not to earn God's favor, but because we've already been given God's favor. You see, that's grace, not law. And every time you see a command like this or a sin to avoid, you've got to think grace and not think law. This past week, I I met a man who pastored, I think it was four churches in a period of about 40 years, spanning from Minnesota to to New Jersey. And uh, uh, now he is in an interim uh, he's pastoring interim uh, uh, churches, so about a year at a time, uh, short ones. And I think he's up to eight churches he's pastored in 45 years, which is it's a lot, right? It's a lot of experience. Would you be surprised to know that not all of those churches were healthy churches? Right? Not surprised at all. But he was describing one of them to us. It was somewhere in Minnesota, so shout out to, to Minnesotans. Um, and this smaller church, he said, because he'd served in some, some bigger churches, the smaller church, he described it as just, it sounded like an oasis, right? Uh, just this place where it was peaceful and people got along and it was just this healthy culture, this environment that, that just sounded so inviting. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a church I'd like to be a part of. And I thought, hang on, I think I'm already part of the church like that. I really feel that way, that uh, this is the healthiest church that I've ever been a part of in my life. And I'm so grateful for that. Not perfect, not even close, all kinds of problems. In fact, thinking about Tim and uh, moving off the elder board, reflecting at last Monday's elder meeting that these six years that he has served as an elder have been some of the greatest challenges we've ever faced in our 20-year history as a church. Some really serious challenges. But we as a body got through them. The enemy wanted to destroy our unity, but God was exceedingly kind to us and has continued to be so. He rescued us and restored us, and thank God is continuing to transform us. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, miracles, these are all miracles. How does, a, how does a dead person live again? How does an enemy become a friend? Grace, mercy, justification, regeneration, all of them supernatural miracles, all of them undeserved, all of them not by works of righteousness, but by your mercy You are mercy. Father, thank you for this transformation. Father, is anybody here this morning who who has not been regenerated yet, who is kind of on the outside looking in and saying, "What, what, what is this mercy? What is this transformed life? What is this recreated life? I'd like to experience that myself. That sounds like something I need. I would ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit 
We know at any time, anywhere, can miraculously regenerate someone, uh, justify them, take their sins upon Christ. Christ gives them his righteousness. Father, I ask right now your Holy Spirit would do a miraculous work in our midst. And miraculous work would continue in all the saints as we worship you by living out your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.